Good day. Welcome to another episode of the Audible Local Ledger Reads to the Blind podcast. You can get more information at audiblelocalledger.org. Stay tuned for today's reading. Hi, I'm Libby, and I'll be reading you today's Cape Cod Times, dated Friday, September 8, 2023. For the weather outlook, we continue to see heat and humidity. Today, highs will get into the low 80s. Tonight, it will dip down into the 70s and be partly cloudy. Over the weekend, the highs will be in the high 70s and low 80s with continued humidity, and on Sunday, we may have a stray thunderstorm. By special request from a few of our faithful listeners, we now present the lottery numbers. For Thursday's midday drawing in the numbers game, we have 2, 8, 5, and 9. The evening drawing numbers were 7, 4, 5, and 6. Thursday's mass cash drawing numbers were 4, 8, 26, 28, and 35. The Powerball drawing on Wednesday. The numbers were 9, 14, 20, 23, 63, and a Powerball of 1. And finally, for Mega Millions, the drawing was Tuesday, and we have numbers 3, 43, 50, 51, 65, and that extra ball of 13. The lead local story on page one of today's newspaper is headlined, Commitment to Corn. Tribal Women Bring Cooperation and Sisterhood to Mashpee. By Rachel Devaney of the Cape Cod Times. Dateline Mashpee. A handful of Wampanoag women moved slowly through green leafy cornfields on Monday, carefully freeing endangered King Philip corn cobs from the 10-foot tall stalks that spread across Moshop Farm. Lauren Peters, a Mashpee Wampanoag trial member, gently cracked a husk open and revealed gleaming rows of amber-colored corn kernels. This is Peters' third season growing the eight-row flint corn, but it's the first time in decades that the strain of corn has been grown by a cohesive group of tribal women. This harvest is an illustration of how much love, care, and community went into the land. As we worked together, we were able to revive ancestral knowledge, said Peters. The King Philip corn variety is named after Wampanoag inter-tribal leader Medicom, who was also known as King Philip. As she held her baby in one hand and plucked corn from its stalk with the other, Danielle Greendeer explained that the corn was given to Europeans by Wampanoag people throughout the early days of English settlement. Much of it was destroyed during King Philip's War in 1675, and the strain almost went extinct during the rise of industrialized agriculture. Green Deer, a Mashpee Wampanoag tribal member, an author of Keepanumuk Weecham's Thanksgiving story, learned how to grow King Philip corn in Wisconsin in 2017, along with other strains like green oxicon and glass gem. In 2020, Green Deer brought that knowledge back to Mashpee. It became a dream, said Green Deer, to teach other tribal members how to grow King Philip corn. My original goal of rematriating King Philip corn to our tribal community is happening, said Green Deer. Since April, Peters and Green Deer, along with women from the Wampanoag Nation, the Narragansett Indian tribe, 
and the Shinnecock Nation have met consistently throughout the spring and summer to nurture the corn, along with other crops in the Three Sisters Garden, including beans and squash. It's been a powerful experience teaching tribal women how to grow food, said Peters. Marlene Lopez, a Mashpee Wampanoag clan mother, meticulously unwound deep purple string beans from a corn cob during Monday's harvest. When she paused, she said the successful corn harvest symbolizes feminine energy. While much of the corn will be ground into flour, she said the multicolored corn kernels can also be used for a litany of projects, including jewelry making. The work put into this harvest shows that women can come together and nurture the ancestors, said Lopez. It's an example of how important feminine energy is. We are on feminine land. The land itself is feminine. And then the corn and the women themselves. How does tradition help in the growing process? The growing process for the corn has been hands-on, said Peters, and required consistency, research, and cooperation. Almost daily throughout the summer, Peters jogged a five-mile loop from her family home in Mashpee to Mawshop Farm to check on the Three Sisters' garden. Sometimes, she said, she was in the fields for up to nine hours a day, especially when she was infusing nutrients into the soil. There was a lot of trial and error, said Peters. She also practiced Three Sister growing techniques, monitored water quality, and straddled the traditional science surrounding native plants, she said. It's tedious, but the growing process helps women of all ages heal and build confidence, said Peters. Getting our hands dirty and making time for traditional work is a win-win situation. Just before harvest, Peters ran to the farm only to find that local deer had eaten almost an entire field of corn. While she was initially dismayed to find many of the cobs nibbled and chewed by the herd, the deer's interest in the King Philip strain was an indication that the group had grown the corn correctly. I realized that if the animals weren't eating the corn, it would be a bad thing, said Peters. The deer, said Green Deer, recognized that Wampanoag corn is back. In a holistic way, we're not just feeding ourselves as humans, but all our relations, she said. Tradition keeps King Philip corn alive. Anita Mother Bear Peters, an elder and Mashpee Wampanoag clan mother, was also on hand to harvest this year's crop. I was lucky to have my great-grandmother alive until I was a teenager, said Anita Peters. She would take us out and show us where the best blueberry patches were and what each medicinal plant was. We learned that growing food is a type of healing ceremony. Lauren Peters lamented on her own childhood in the early 1990s. Every week during the summer, Winona Noni Hendricks, a member of the Nipmuc and Mashpee Wampanoag tribe, would pack her magenta-colored Dodge minivan with tribal girls and take them fishing, clamming, and planting. Some of us didn't have a mother or a female figure to look up to in our lives, said Lauren Peters. Noni taught us how to be women. She infused us with confidence and taught us how to be ladies. She even taught us how to walk in heels. Hendricks, who died in August of 2022, also taught the group how to stay grounded. She taught us how to handle our emotions, said Lauren Peters. She would say, go out into the woods when you are upset. Don't do anything when you're angry. Go to the woods and heal before you come back. The concept behind the three sisters, corn, beans, and squash, was also important to Hendricks, said Lauren Peters. 
The crops treat each other like family and support one another in the field. Just like the three sisters, Hendricks reminded the group of girls that they need to support and care for one another. Each of us has our own special medicine, and we need to remember to highlight what that special medicine is, she said. In their adult lives, the fields have become a place for Noni's girls, who are now adult women, to find peace, said Lauren Peters. It's the first time in a long time I've seen that happen in our community, and I want it to happen more, she said. Throughout the season, tribal men have also become involved by delivering rabbit manure and sopping wet seaweed to the garden beds to help pump nutrients into the soil. The whole community felt involved and wanted to be a part of this, she said. A future in planting. As young children zipped around the farm, Green Deer talked about plans for a corn watchtower, which was used during the growing season by the Wampanoag tribe before European colonization. The purpose of the structure, which she described as a prehistoric jungle gym, was to simultaneously entertain children and deter crows and deer from the planting fields. The corn watchtower was almost like a treehouse, but with no trees, she said. It provided shade and gave the kids something to do. The group also hopes to revive traditional tribal corn songs and corn dances, said Green Deer. For Green Deer, the commitment the group made to the corn is inspiring. It's not a tribal job, she said. No one was paid for their efforts. This was consistent time, love, and energy that people sunk into community development, cultural revitalization, and food sovereignty, she said. The reward was the harvest. And to me, that's the most important part. Even if we got one cob of corn, it would have been worth it. Report says state needs to do more to maximize federal infrastructure money by Sam Drysdale of the Statehouse News Service. Massachusetts could secure up to $17 billion in federal infrastructure spending through three federal laws set to deploy a total $751 billion across the country, but only if it puts more of its own money on the line, according to a new report. The Massachusetts Taxpayers Foundation report estimates that Massachusetts could maximize how many federal dollars are sent to the Bay State through the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, or the IIJA, Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA, and Creating Helpful Incentives to Produce Semiconductors Act, or CHIPS, by committing nearly $3 billion in state resources. While the state has signaled its commitment to identifying these resources through recent bond bills and direct appropriations, an estimated $800 million need, need remains to meet the state match requirements for federal programs, a press release from NTF said. The organization said it anticipates a potential state match requirement of about $2.67 billion and has identified $1.87 billion in potential sources of state matching funds for federal grant programs. There is no shortage of need for the potential federal funding. The money could go toward repairing aging infrastructure, like the Cape Cod Bridges or the MBTA, investing in climate and energy resources, and supporting the state's science and research centers. Governor Maura Healey has promised that she will give her all to compete for federal dollars. She created a new position in her office, Director of Federal Funds and Infrastructure, which is focused solely on securing money from D.C. for infrastructure, climate, and economic development projects. 
The governor picked former candidate for lieutenant governor and attorney general Quentin Palfrey for the job in March. Massachusetts has a unique opportunity to aggressively compete for billions of federal dollars to support crucial infrastructure, climate and economic development projects in our state, from the Inflation Reduction Act to the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law to the CHIPS and Science Act and beyond. Healy said when her administration hired Palfrey, who makes $160,000 a year. MTF found the largest potential funding opportunity for Massachusetts through the IIJA, estimating the state could receive $14 billion. Across all three federal laws, the Policy Research Center has identified 134 programs that require a commitment of matching state funds. Most of the funding through the IIJA, IRA, and CHIPS Act will be made available over the next five to 10 years, the report says. It identifies two bond authorization bills the legislature passed in 22 and 23, the second of which was Healy's Immediate Needs Fiscal Year 23 Supplemental Budget, which combined included at least $9 billion in bonding authorizations that could be used to meet state match requirements for federal grant programs. However, while this total represents the amount of state bonding approved by the legislature, it does not reflect the amount of state borrowing that's affordable within the state's capital investment plan, the MTF report warns. The administration's five-year spending plan is subject to certain debt affordability policies that limit how much new borrowing a state can issue. In June, the Healy administration released its fiscal 24 to 28 capital investment plan, which called for $14.5 billion in capital investments over five years, with about $1.8 billion in spending to access federal funds made available through the IIJA, IRA, or CHIPS Act, the study says. The plan features $262 million toward the federal government's efforts to replace the Bourne and Sagamore bridges to Cape Cod, after previous efforts to secure federal funding to replace the bridges stumbled, ultimately ramping up to a $700 million long-term state commitment. Healy's office announced in August that her administration would submit applications over the next few weeks for a combined $1.45 billion in federal grants, most of which would go to replacing the Sagmore Bridge, but not yet the nearby Bourne Bridge. The price tag to replace both bridges has soared from $1.5 billion estimate in 2019 to roughly $4.5 billion today. Even with the legislature's bond commitments and the administration's capital plan, MTF estimates that there remains an outstanding match need of at least $800 million. To meet that remaining $800 million, the Policy Research Center recommends that administrative and agency officials be allowed to access matching resources outside of the typical appropriations process to avoid delays that could mean missing out on a funding opportunity. They also recommend the state uses one-time revenues to tap into the grant money. Patriot Front Signs Found Outside Black-Owned Businesses by Rashik Tabusam Mujib of the Cape Cod Times. Oak Bluffs police are investigating four signs placed around town over the weekend in support of a white supremacist group. Police found Patriot Front signs attached to poles on roads Sunday morning, according to a post on the department's Facebook page. 
The group is one of the most visible white supremacist groups in the U.S., according to the Anti-Defamation League. According to a Facebook post by Cape and Islands District Attorney Robert Galabois, at least two signs were placed outside Black-owned businesses. The two signs shown on the department's online post, one reading, Strong Families, Strong Nations, and the other reading, America First, have links to the Patriot Front. Since Sunday, four signs have been found, according to Oak Bluff's Police Lieutenant Nicholas Corelli. They were found in downtown Oak Bluffs, said Corelli on Wednesday, without specifying the exact locations. Three signs were taken down by the police. Galabois said he has notified all 22 police chiefs in the district and is working with Massachusetts state police detectives, according to the Post. If you observe any of these signs on public property or private property without the owner's permission, then please notify your local police department, Galabois said in the Facebook post. We're all working collectively on identifying the individuals involved. Oak Bluffs police are consulting with the district attorney's office to determine whether any charges are applicable if police are able to locate who posted the signs, according to Corelli. We're investigating as to who possibly could have placed the signs, he said. Cape and Islands District Attorney's Office spokesperson, Danielle Whitney, declined Wednesday to comment because an investigation is underway. Developer wants 40 apartments in Hyannis by Denise Coffey of the Cape Cod Times. Dateline Hyannis. A 40-unit apartment building could be built on the parcel where the First Church of Christ scientist now stands. Initial plans for the property at 94 Stevens Street call for the church's demolition and construction of a four-story structure. The church's president, Elizabeth Lynch, and treasurer, John Hoagland, signed a quitclaim deed on August 2nd, according to the Barnstable County Registry of Deeds. 94 Stevens Street, LLC, purchased the property for $995,000. The LLC was incorporated in June. Roberto Maya Jr. is listed as the manager. He is also the developer of the project. The church was built in 1952 and has public water and gas. It is assessed at $1,470,500, according to Barnstable Records. Maya can't start any work until July 2024. We gave the church a year, he said. Initial renderings by architect James Smith of Centerville show a boomerang-shaped building with frontage on Stevens Street and Bierce's Way. The building itself will cover about 30% of the 1.04-acre lot, with parking taking up about 50% of it. Initial plans call for 43 parking spaces, including six handicapped spaces. Maya plans to have four affordable units in the mix. Barnstable Planning and Development Department Interim Assistant Director Jim Kupfer said the town is in informal discussions with the developer who has yet to file a site plan review. With the town's new zoning targeting the downtown area, a site plan review is required to assure development standards are met. If they are, the project will not need to go before the Planning Board or Zoning Board of Appeals for special permits. Maya said the zoning changes in downtown Hyannis have helped. Developers still must meet a range of conditions for a project's site approval, but the changes have given them general guidelines about what can be done with properties. The zoning allows us to do more, Maya said. 
The zoning changes and amendments lay out specific regulations for developers that will enable them to provide plans for a building or modification of a building that would be allowed by right. A use by right is one permitted in a district that does not require special review and approval. Barnstable is excited to see investment in our community, Kupfer said. Bit of misinformation cited with impact of 55 new students. By Paul Gately, special to the Cape Cod Times. Dateline, born. Superintendent Carrie Ann Quinlan Zou publicly reassured the Bourne School Committee Wednesday night that the education of 55 students from migrant or displaced families has placed no financial impacts on Bourne Public Schools at the start of the new school year. In her brief report, Quinlan Zhu acknowledged the addition of the new students created a little bit of a buzz in the community, but that fears and concerns about fiscal impacts represented a little bit of misinformation. Quinlan Zhu said the district is receiving significant funding for our needs on three fronts, basic per pupil and per day costs, and funds flowing to a transportation account. The public school district had 1,554 students in the previous year, according to state records. The superintendent offered a shout out to the teachers who welcomed the new youngsters and said there is general excitement about the new district throughout the system. She said new students also include kids from military and U.S. Coast Guard families living at Joint Base Cape Cod, where migrant and displaced families are also housed in temporary shelter units. Opponents to Governor Maura Healey's administration sending migrant and displaced families to Joint Base Cape Cod and to Bourne, among other Massachusetts towns, brought their concerns to the Bourne Select Board at a Tuesday meeting. The Select Board was questioned on the use of taxpayer dollars, the effect on the Bourne public school system, and the potential impact on public health and public safety with migrant and displaced families arriving to live in town and Bourne. Town Administrator Marlene McCollum is set to present strategic information to the Select Board on September 12th. State Senator Julian Sear, a Democrat from Truro, told the Times on August 25th that state education money has been set aside through the Student Opportunity Act, which has specifically expanded funding to programs for English language learners. No individuals protesting the arrival of migrants and displaced families in Bourne appeared at the Bourne School Committee meeting on Wednesday. Committee Chair Emily Berry quickly moved any public comment to later in the evening after school principals supplied building-by-building building updates about the start of the school year. The committee's policy allows the chair to schedule public comment sessions at any point during the session. Preparations for upcoming repairs to Bourne Bridge a concern. There was time, however, for discussion of the pending September 18th reduction of traffic lanes across the Bourne Bridge during repairs that will last until late November. Quinlan Zhu and Business Services Director Jordan Geist were set to meet with Bourne Police Chief Brandon Esip on Wednesday to consider bridge-related traffic issues, especially for school bus drivers negotiating traffic congestion to get kids to class and home within reasonable times. School buses routinely move throughout town during the morning and afternoon when traffic quickly backs up all along Southside approaches to the Bourne Bridge. The superintendent said ESIP has continually supported district needs and indicated he would continue to do so. 
Quinlan Zhu and Geist said traffic conditions likely will be a challenge at the bridge for a week or so until motorists change their driving patterns. At that point, Geist said, the district would try to react and adapt to the change in ways to ensure timely transport of students. In the interim, he said, the entire community will have to deal with lane closures and extended repair periods on the canal bridges. Buses are equipped with GPS location devices that would help if drivers become trapped in backups for extended periods, Geist said. Transportation Director Sue Downing handles such situations, which extends to notifying families about extreme conditions, Geist said. There are three Bourne Public Schools south of the Cape Cod Canal off Trowbridge and Waterhouse Roads near the Bourne Bridge, as well as an elementary school building off Scenic Highway north of the canal. Upper Cape Cod Regional Technical School also is off Sandwich Road, south of the canal and less than a mile from the Bourne Bridge. Boston Marathon Purse to Break $1 Million with Boost in Para-Athlete Divisions by Jimmy Golan of the Associated Press, Dateline Boston. The Boston Marathon will add two more para-athlete divisions and boost prize money that will put the total Patriots Day purse above $1 million for the first time, organizers said Thursday. The Boston Athletic Association said its flagship race will welcome athletes classified with coordination impairments and intellectual impairments. Previous divisions for upper and lower limb impairment will be more inclusive, race organizers said. We're always looking at ways to celebrate and reward athletic excellence, BAA President and CEO Jack Fleming said in a statement. Boston is a running city, and we've made it our goal to elevate para-athletes as they train and compete for the podium at our events, from the 5K through to the marathon. In the first year after Bank of America replaced John Hancock as the main sponsor, first prize for its men's and women's wheelchair winners will rise to $40,000 from $25,000, with a $50,000 bonus for a course record that is equal to the award in the men's and women's divisions. The checks for second through 10th places also will increase, bringing the total wheelchair division's purse to $313,500. First prize for the winners of the open men's and women's divisions receive $150,000 apiece. Wheelchair and para-athlete division prize money will also be increased in 2024 for the BAA's other races, the 5K, the 10K, and the half marathon. Prizes will also increase for the half marathon open divisions. Top para-competitors said prize money for the divisions makes it possible for them to afford expensive racing equipment and travel to races. But it also provides potential para-athletes with role models. The legacy of the original 1970 wheelchair athletes has enabled myself and all other para-athletes of my generation to perceive ourselves and to be perceived publicly as professional athletes. I cannot express how much this has meant for all of us. Defending Boston Marathon wheelchair winner and Paralympic gold medalist Susanna Scaroni said in a statement, The provision of prize money indicated that the BAA truly recognized that wheelchair racers are elite athletes, she said, and this support has enabled the sport to grow and improve and subsequently gives more people with disabilities exposure to role models. Mark Cesetto, the world record holder in the double lower leg amputee division, 
called upon other races to be more inclusive. It's about diversifying the sport and creating more avenues for people with disabilities to compete, so we continue to grow the sport for future generations, he said. We've reached the halfway point of our program today, and regular listeners are aware that at this stage of our broadcast, we move to the obituaries. Our first obituary is for Pasquale A. Arrigo, Dateline Dennis. Pasquale A. Pat Arrigo, a respected pharmacist, committed family man, and avid sportsman, passed away peacefully on September 4th. He was 96 years old. Pasquale was the son of the late Joseph and Rose Albanese Arrigo. He was the beloved brother of Joseph of Franklin and the late Frank, Raymond, Conchetta, James, Lewis, and Mary Jane. Pat was married to Alvina Kelly Arrigo for 68 blissful years until her passing. Together, they had five children. Pat was also the grandfather of five. Visitation on Sunday from 1 to 3 p.m. A funeral mass will be celebrated on Monday at 10.15 at St. Rose of Lima Parish in Topsfield, Massachusetts. Kindly visit the website of Mackey Funeral Home for complete details. David Joseph Carvalho, Dateline South Orleans. David Joseph Carvalho passed over peacefully at home on September 3rd. Looking out at Pleasant Bay in Orleans, the corner of the world he loved most. He was surrounded by family as well as many friends who were like family to him. He was 91 years old. David was born on March 12, 1932, to Elidio and Marie Carvalho, who were both born in Portugal and came to the United States as young adults. He was a devoted brother to his two sisters, Edith and Nancy and especially devoted to his mother. His loving daughter, Suzanne, and his grandchildren, David and Graziella, were the light of his life. David was also proud to be part of a large group of childhood friends from Brockton, whose friendships were formed in an elementary school and continue to this day. He was smart, lovingly loyal, and an honest and true friend. David resided half the year in his other favorite place, Bonita Springs, Florida where he had many, many people who loved him and whom he loved so much. He was an excellent golfer and so passionate about the game that he shot his age from the time he was 80 years old until 2023. His sense of humor was intact until the very end. So were his enviable negotiating skills. In fact, had he known the current cost of obituaries, he would have no doubt negotiated that deal before he departed. He also embraced all that life had to offer. Even in his worst moments, when his daughter asked how he was feeling, his response was always perfect. With one exception, when after a thoughtful moment of reflection, he replied, confident. A celebration of life will be held on September 12th from 3 to 6 p.m. at the Waquasset Inn in Harwich. In lieu of flowers, donations may be made on his behalf to the Friends of Pleasant Bay. For online condolences, please visit the website of Nickerson Funerals. Dad, you will be missed. Today's Ask Carolyn column is headlined, Leash Walking Newcomers Kill the Neighborhood's Off-Leash Vibe. Dear Carolyn, I live in a neighborhood with a lot of dogs. It's suburban and tree-lined, 
with quiet streets conducive to walking dogs on a leash. We also have a large open field with some wooded paths where people historically meet in the early mornings and on weekends, and dogs are off-leash and playing. I've been part of the off-leash party for about 15 years, and it has been problem-free. Lately, there have been some newcomers who are walking in the fields with their dogs on a leash. It's natural that the other dogs run up to them to see if they want to play. Some of the leashed dog owners don't mind, but others become annoyed because their dogs are not friendly with other dogs. How should we approach this? I usually apologize and call my dog back, but it's becoming more frequent and I'm getting frustrated. My feeling is that if you want to walk your dog on a leash, you should stick to the road where all dogs are leashed. If you want to walk your dog on a leash in an area where dogs run and play freely, then you shouldn't get annoyed when they want to play with your dog, especially if you know your dog isn't friendly. Your thoughts? Signed, Dog Lover. Dear Dog Lover, My thoughts are that you had a nice 15-year run, so be glad for it. Or train your dog better. Or implore new neighbors kindly. You simply don't have standing to keep people from walking leashed dogs in the fields. Plus, few ways of greeting new neighbors are less welcoming than letting them know they're at fault for violating some cherished unwritten rule forged in the Golden Age they ended by showing up. Onleashers are as entitled to the landscape as you are, as are people who fear or dislike dogs but enjoy a walk in the fields, whom you haven't mentioned and for whom unleashed dogs that aren't brought immediately to heel are a nuisance at best. You find the other's annoyance annoying, but put yourself in their position. Also, if you can't or won't call off your dogs before they reach newcomers, you're creating significant stress for any walker of a leashed, reactive dog. I say this as a fellow dog person who's been on both sides here, calling back my too-friendly off-leash dog and holding the leash of a fearful one. In your natural dogs-run-up-to-play scenario, the leash walkers are the ones acting responsibly, not you. I've assumed there aren't laws in your favor. If it's legally an off-leash area, then signage is your friend. Lobby for some, and train your dog better, too. With leash laws in force, though, there's nothing about your cause that I can back in print. Except the concept of free play for dogs, of course. In lieu of harumphing newcomers, take the neighborhood transformation as a cue to petition for fenced off-leash spaces. To be fair, that process alone could fuel an advice industry, but it is the right pro-neighbor, pro-dog thing to do regardless. Gracious acceptance isn't just a valid path. Sometimes it's the only decent one. In this case, I urge you to take it. Here's this Friday's Best Bets column, headlined Artists in Provincetown, Windmill Weekend and More by Frankie Rowley of the Cape Cod Times. Pumpkin Spice is back at Duncan. Halloween decorations line the aisles of home stores. School is back in session. We feel the changing of the seasons, even though, according to the calendar, fall doesn't officially start until September 23rd. Either way, things here on Cape Cod are still going strong. The 27th Annual Celebration of Life returns to Provincetown after a three-year break caused by the pandemic, with more than a score of performers. It's held on the eve of the annual Provincetown Swim for Life and Paddler Flotilla, which launches the next morning. 
The Eastham Windmill Weekend and Seaside Le Mans at Mashpee Commons kick off a busy week. Here are some fun events to get you excited for fall. Join the 27th free Celebration of Life concert in Provincetown. On the Friday after Labor Day since 1994, the historic and elegant sanctuary of Provincetown's Unitarian Universalist Meeting House has filled with music, joy, and memories in the annual Celebration of Life. After a three-year pause from 2020 to 2022 due to the COVID-19 pandemic, this year's 27th event begins at 8 p.m. Friday, September 8th. This year's performers include Megan Amorese, Arian Carlos, Chathan Varen Collins, Donnelly and Richardson, Harrison Fish, Dayan Gurganoff, Sue Goldberg, Billy Howe, Zach Johnson, Zoe Lewis, Ken Lonergan, Madison Mayer, D'Angelo Nieves, John Thomas, Peter Toto, Darlene Van Alston, Janet Villas, the Reverend Kate Wilkinson, and other surprises. As 8 p.m. approaches, drumming will fill the space. At 8 p.m. precisely, hundreds of colorful prayer ribbons rise up until they arch from the top of the Trump Loy ceiling to begin another celebration of life. The event is produced and hosted by John Thomas and co-sponsored by the Unitarian Universalist Meeting House of Provincetown and Great Music on Sundays at 5. The Celebration of Life is presented in association with the annual Provincetown Swim for Life and Paddler Flotilla, which launches the next morning. Yoga, laser tag, and a fish fry at Eastham Windmill Weekend. Head down to Eastham this weekend for Eastham Windmill Weekend. The event runs from September 8th to September 10th, featuring a slew of events to keep attendees entertained on Windmill Green. On Friday, September 8th, come and enjoy a fish fry and talent show and give a round of applause to this year's Windmill Weekend honoree, Debbie Abbott. Abbott worked for the town of Eastham for almost 20 years and now serves as the president of the Friends of the Eastham Library. On Saturday, September 9th, the day is packed with events starting at 9.15. Whether you want to try your hand at some morning yoga, visit the Schoolhouse Museum, catch a musical performance, or the 27th Windmill Weekend Vehicle Show, Saturday has an event sure to please. Family games, such as tug-of-war and laser tag, will also take place in the afternoon, alongside a wine and beer garden hosted by Truro Vineyards of Cape Cod and Devil's Purse Brewing Company. On Sunday, September 10th, the road race is the first event of the day, kicking off at 8 a.m., from there, the festival begins to wind down with a few performances and raffles throughout the day, but be sure to catch the great tricycle race at 2 p.m. The Windmill Weekend is hosted by the nonprofit Windmill Weekend Incorporated on the Windmill Green in Eastham. Events begin on Friday, September 8th at 5.30 and end on Sunday, September 10th at 3 p.m. Support local nonprofits at Seaside Le Mans in Mashpee. It's race day on September 9th at Mashpee Commons for Seaside Le Mans. The race was created by Davenport Companies after a team bonding trip to a go-kart track. Now the race is celebrating its 22nd year of raising money for Cape nonprofits. This year's beneficiaries are the Alzheimer's Family Support Center, 
Cape Cod Healthcare's Cancer Patient Navigator Program, Penakee's Island School, Cape Cod Tech Foundation, and Sharing Kindness. The race is free to attend and the opening ceremony starts at noon. The race lasts for around four hours, but entertainment for children and families will be provided throughout the day. Meet local fauna at the Cape Cod Wildlife Collaboratives Festival in Barnstable. Who doesn't love a bit of wildlife at the weekend? The Cape Cod Wildlife Collaborative will be hosting its 13th annual Wildlife Festival at Mass Audubon's Long Pasture Wildlife Sanctuary on September 9th. Stop by for some live animal education shows, walk through a 45-foot inflatable North Atlantic right whale, and try to win some cool prizes, including a whale adoption or a guided nature walk. Food and drinks will be flowing at the festival as well, thanks to the filling station food truck, herbivore patisserie, and Lewis Brothers solar ice cream truck. Make sure to bring a deck chair and enjoy a live performance from local band, Just Another Guru. The festival is free to attend, but donations are appreciated. The event begins at 10 and goes until 3 at Mass Audubon's Long Pasture Wildlife Sanctuary on Bonehill Road in Barnstable. Grab a Millbilly breakfast in Marston's Mills. There's no better start to a Sunday than some eggs, bacon, and pancakes, so why not have your breakfast be for a good cause? This Sunday, September 10th, celebrate Grandparents' Day with the Marston's Mills Village Association for their Millbilly breakfast. The breakfast is free to attend, but the association has a suggested donations of $10 per adult and $8 per kid with all donations helping the Marston's Mills Village Association Scholarship Fund. Breakfast at Liberty Hall on Main Street in Marston's Mills is from 8 to 10 a.m. Tend a multimedia dance concert about the body and existence in West Harwich. M-Body is a multimedia contemporary dance concert by the Movimento Project alongside live music from Frank Paransky and Larry Chaplin with video art by Philippi Borges. The concert uses choreography to explore the role we play in existence through thoughts, identities, behaviors, feelings, and interactions with others. The cast consists of 10 dancers ranging in age from 9 to over 60, and Peransky and Chaplin as musicians. Tickets for the show are $20, and showtimes will take place at 7.30 p.m. on September 8th and 9th, and at 3 p.m. on September 10th at the Cape Cod Theatre Company, located at Division Street in West Harwich. Catch a Crow's Pasture Show at the Cape Cod Museum of Art in Dennis. Contemporary folk band Crow's Pasture will perform at the Cape Cod Museum of Art on September 10th as a part of its Music and More summer concert series. A husband and wife duo, Crow's Pasture's Music, features Monique Byrne on the claw hammer banjo and Andy Rogovin on the guitar, both contributing instrumentally and vocally to their music. With the release of their latest album, Don't Blink, on September 1st, their CCMOA show is sure to be full of some new tracks, maybe even their cover of Bruce Springsteen's If I Should Fall. You'll just have to go and see for yourself. Tickets are $24 for non-members, $18 for members, and the concert begins at 4.30 p.m. 
celebrate 50 years of the Wallace Nutting Collectors Club convention in Hyannis. The Wallace Nutting Collectors Club will hold its 2023 convention at the Emerald Resort in Hyannis from September 14th to 15th with a trip to Nantucket on September 16th. On Thursday, September 14th, there will be a catch-up at cocktails event in the Cape Cod Room at the Emerald Resort from 5 to 6 p.m., followed by a dinner and 50th anniversary celebration of the Wallace Nutting Collectors Club Convention. Nutting, who lived from 1861 to 1941, was an American minister, photographer, and artist, best known for his landscapes. On Friday, September 15th, early birds will catch the worm as the Wallace Nutting and Nutting-like buy and sell marketplace begins at 7.30 and ends at 9.30. From there, convention attendees will go to the annual meeting with accompanying presentations until 11.30. Presentations will be followed by a lunch and tour at 1 p.m. and cocktails and dinner at Tugboat's Restaurant starting at 6. Finally, on September 16th, Convention participants will be taking a trip to Nantucket for a scenic tour of the island and of the architectural styles that inspired Nutting and were captured in his photographs. The boat departs at 8.15 a.m. from Hyannis and heads back from Nantucket at 3.30 p.m. The Emerald Resort is located at 35 Scudder Avenue in Hyannis. In the books column, the headline is Cape Cod doesn't just have artists, it has many authors by Amber May Rivard of the Cape Cod Times. Cape Cod not only has a surplus of artists, we've got the writers, too. This week, we touch on almost every genre you can think of. We've got the romance, mystery, fiction and nonfiction, horror, short stories, you name it, we have it. Authors are not in a short supply on the Cape, and we are here for it. The Road Toward Home by Corinne Demis, Lake Union Publishing in 2023. You may have seen Corinne Demis's children's books in our last book preview, and she's back again. Award-winning author and college professor, Demis divides her time between Western Massachusetts and Cape Cod. This book takes down a humorous love story between Noah and Cassandra, who are reacquainted at the Clarion Retirement Home, which soon leads to their escape. Clarion feels more like a prison, and with each of them carrying a lifetime of baggage, will they make it through this journey they have embarked on? Next is The Secret to Happiness, Cape Cod Creamery, by Suzanne Woods Fisher, published by Ravel in 2023. Suzanne Woods Fisher's new book is the second book in her Cape Cod Creamery series. The first one is called The Sweet Life. The author's uncle had a dental office in Chatham for over 40 years, and as a frequent visitor, she loves the Cape. Callie Dixon had everything going for her until she made a terrible mistake, causing her to take refuge at her aunt's house on Cape Cod with the hope of bouncing back. But she made the mistake for a reason, and simply bouncing back is not an option. Things get even worse when she's dragged to a secret to happiness class something she did not want to even think of. Instructor Bruno has a way of reaching Callie that upsets her thoughts and emotions. Will hitting rock bottom help Callie find out what and who is missing from her life?
Next, we have a book by Alexandra Slater called Friends with Boats, published by River Grove Books in 2023. Alexandra Slater is an award-winning journalist and former reporter for NPR. Slater has now had many professions, including an actress, comedian, drama, and creative writing teacher, clinical researcher, and more. Slater was a Falmouth resident for 15 years. She came to the Cape because her father did research at Woods Hole every summer. Slater's book brings you on a whirlwind of a dilemma plus one. Mac Taylor is a handsome, wealthy, and recently divorced man who shakes up the lives of three friends when he moves back to Cape Cod to open a resort. Sadie once dated Mac, and that means she has dibs. Or so she thinks. She realizes she has competition. Her two best friends. These ladies are at a crossroads in their lives, and the attention from Mac is hard to resist. Will they gamble their marriage and friendship for another chance at love? Next, we have a book called Needy, How to Advocate for Your Needs and Claim Your Sovereignty by Mara Glatzel. Mara Glatzel has lived on the outside of Cape Cod her whole life and is now a North Turo resident. As an intuitive coach, writer, and podcast host, she's a self-proclaimed needy woman who helps other needy humans. Her book is about putting your needs first, something that usually ends up on the back burner. Through Glatzel's book, she shares her own approach to identifying, honoring, and advocating for the parts of yourself that yearn for acknowledgement. She advises you using daily check-in and journal prompts and learning how to pave your own way on your own terms. When practicing this work, she writes, your confidence will be unshakable because you exist in humanity where you are exactly enough. Next, we have Up Into the Trees by Virginia Riser, published by Kindle Direct Publishing in 2023. Virginia Riser had lived on the Cape for 30 years before her death from breast cancer. Riser was a large print editor for GK Publishing in Boston, then started her own catering business when she moved here, and her dream was to publish a book. In her novel, a stranger is causing a suburban Boston neighborhood to be torn apart. Neighbors must confront their fears and review their loyalties. Their choices bring about a shocking conclusion. The story is told from the perspective of three people while exploring the consequences of sexual assault and forgiveness. What influence does perspective have on the truth? Up Into the Trees brings you along on the journey of exploring pain, guilt, judgment, forgiveness, and love. Next, we have Hidden Gems. Margaret Getchell LaForge by Stephanie Forshe, published by Archway in 2023. In the early COVID days, Stephanie Forshe learned about Margaret Getchell LaForge, the first female retail executive. She found only a group of people were aware of LaForge's accomplished life. With a countless biographical series, none focus on women in business, the author writes. Forshe wrote this book for children and adults to find inspiration from LaForge to pursue their dreams as business leaders. LaForge, a Nantucket native born Margaret Getchtel, started as a cash clerk at R.H. Macy's and rose to superintendent and second-in-command within six years, overseeing all 200 employees. Initially hired for her skill with numbers, she proved to be a savvy businesswoman 
who can also be credited with the addition of a toy department in Macy's and the suggestion of the iconic Macy's Red Star logo. My Ride, My Rules, The Sky We Look At is the Same by Courtney K. Hurst, self-published in 2023. Courtney Hurst is a fourth-generation Provincetown native. Her new book brings you along on the journey of discovery, trauma, and healing. Since Elizabeth left for college a year ago, she hasn't been home since because it could unearth the dark secret she's been keeping. That changes when her dad insists that she return for the annual barbecue. A two-day trip? What could go wrong? What she will learn is going to turn her world upside down. As she's haunted by the memories of last summer, she only spirals further when she learns she's not the only one keeping a secret. With the world being swept from under her, she must be courageous and figure out how she wants to live her life and who she wants in it. In another article about books in today's paper, we have one headlined, Rare Book Theft, Foiled Armored Car Heist at Heart of Odd Friendship. One good tip from a con turned into a lifelong friendship for two unlikely candidates. David Nadalski is a retiree living in Orleans whose interesting past comes to light in his new book, The Con and the FBI Agent, An Unlikely Alliance, published last year by Roman and Littlefield Publishers. Nadalski was a Detroit police officer for six years and then an FBI agent for 21 years, which landed him in Boston. This true story spotlights the biggest case of his career stopping what could have been one of the biggest armed robberies of the 20th century and saving many lives in the process. Let's start from the beginning of this relationship. Nadalski was in the FBI's Violent Crime and Major Offenders Unit when he was assigned to investigate a break-in at the John Quincy Adams Library, called the Stone Library in 1996. Somebody had cut open the wooden door and bypassed the alarm system and had stolen four very significant manuscripts from a display case inside. These books were historically important, and we were in a panic to get them back, said Nadalski. The stolen manuscripts were the Nine Mendy Bible and the 1621 King James Bible in Latin, both owned by John Quincy Adams, a 1772 Bible owned by Adams's wife, and a natural history book from 1785 called Bloch's Ichthyology. During the panic, Nadalski was informed that an inmate named Anthony Romano, a.k.a. Tony, had information for him about the robbery. Romano was an accomplished mechanic whose addiction problems led him to jail. When he was on his drug binges, he pulled armed robberies with a plastic squirt gun that he had painted up to look like the real thing, Nadalski said of Romano. Romano told Nadalski that he knew who stole the books and named Kevin Gildea. He warned Gildea would be in contact with the FBI to ask for a deal in return for the books, and that's exactly what he did, but his request was denied. Nadalski arrested Gildea on an unrelated gun violation. Upon searching his wallet, he found a Portsmouth, New Hampshire gym card with a combination code on the back. Sure enough, the books were found in the back room of the gym. Nadalski went to the parole board on Romano's behalf, and he was granted early release to a halfway house. But he would soon be calling Nadalski with another case. The plan to rob an armored car. Romano started working at a body shop in Dorchester. According to Nadalski's book, 
Romano overheard owner Carmelo Merlino talking to his crew, Stephen Rossetti, David Turner, and his nephew, William Merlino, planning a robbery on the Loomis Fargo Armored Car Facility in Easton. With the intention of falling under the radar, they needed a guy on the inside, and Romano tells them he can help, that he knows a guy on the inside. Little did they know Romano would spend the next two years feeding Nadalski information and wearing wires to finally bring them down in 1999. Nadalski took a risk on Romano's information, but Romano truly risked his life informing on dangerous criminals with ties to the New England Mafia. How the heist went down. While the initial plan was to apprehend the gang before the crime was committed, it all changed when Turner was spotted putting a large duffel bag into a car that was suspected to be full of weapons. They were each individually arrested by the SWAT team as they approached the garage. Two of them got a little suspicious, Stephen Rossetti and David Turner, said Nadalski. Unbeknownst to them, there was a surveillance plane following them. SWAT members had to break the car windows and drag them out. Inside the vehicle were guns, bulletproof vests, police scanners, and a military grenade that was meant to be thrown at police, Nadalski said. All four men were initially sentenced to 40 years. Nadalski got Romano a substantial monetary reward for his work and set him up in an apartment until he was placed in witness protection. He kind of got homesick and ended up taking off and ended up back in Boston, and calling me and I'd have to deal with him and get him back where he belongs because there were people looking for him to kill him, Nadelsky said. FBI agent and con man forge unlikely friendship. Romano had been affiliated with the defendants before bad blood brewed. Gildea spread rumors in jail that he was a rat. Carmelo Merlino recruited Romano's ex-wife to be a drug mule while he was incarcerated. But, Nadalski explained, he believed it became something much bigger for Romano other than being vengeful. He just said this would be the best thing he's ever done in his life, something that would make people proud of him. And I said, well, I know one person that's proud of you, and that's me, he said. Romano died from a cerebral hemorrhage a few years ago. You might not be able to put this book down. Nadalski's time spent with Romano is evident in the writing. Using true storytelling, he gives a detailed account of how Romano ended up in this situation. His descriptive ability draws pictures quickly in your mind, while also explaining his own story and how he became an FBI agent. Nadalski does not leave loose ends. And that's all I have time for today. This is your reader Libby saying thank you for listening.